please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Beginning in verse 27. Just consider that even the river of God's blessing through his word is actually flowing down to us at the lowest place. It has come to us here. This is the very word of God. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Would you now pray with me? O Heavenly Father, Your Word is flowing to us even as a blessing to the very lowest place We come from that lowest place and we ask even for your rivers of mercy and grace to come to us. Oh Lord, we need them to be ever flowing to us this morning. Even as we come to you in humility to appeal to you, to ask you, Heavenly Father, that you would so minister to us that we would be saved, that we would be restored, that we would be comforted, that we would be delivered, and that we would be brought even into your own blessed kingdom, the kingdom of your own dear Son, the kingdom of the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we have seen 
and know the, the awesome deeds of Jesus Christ, that those awesome deeds would be at the forefront of our minds, that we would be a people who think about Christ's work on the cross, who think about the triumph of the resurrection, who think about the glory of his ascension and his soon return to judge the living and the dead, and that our lives would be shaped by those wondrous works. Oh Lord, we pray that you would turn us away from our sins, that we would flee them, that we would be repulsed by them, and that we would flee to the refuge that is in Jesus. Lord, there are many here today, here among us, and many who are absent, who are struggling with so many physical illnesses, whether illnesses that are short-term or illnesses that are long-term. And the decay of our bodies and the weaknesses that we feel, Lord, they remind us that you are God and we are not. We are not infinitely omnipotent. And we need your grace, Lord. And so I pray that you would give comfort even to those who are suffering, who are, af- who are afraid even, who are living in fear, fear of their own mortality. Lord, I pray that you would help them to have a hope of life beyond the grave and that their hearts would be elevated as a result. Lord, as we think of the issues of life and death, birth and death, we hear this tragic report of Conrad Mabewe's 31-year-old son who died suddenly. We pray for that family, one of the, Conrad being one of the greatest preachers of our generation, and yet you have touched that family with great sorrow. We pray that you would give them comfort even this morning as you would minister to them. We think in contrast of all the blessings of births in our church, of all these babies being born. Lord, what a mercy to these families, to these parents. But Lord, what a grace to us to remind us of the beauty and wonder and miracle of life. Oh Lord, we see it as a privilege, as a grace to us, and we don't want to take it for granted. We thank you even for these little lives. I pray that we would all take up this stewardship to raise these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Lord, as well, we rejoice at new birth as we see and hear testimony of your work in causing people who are dead in spiritual sin, dead, spiritually dead, and yet you causing them to be born from above in a new birth, a second birth, the true birth that, that causes them to be then an inheritor even of your kingdom. Oh Lord, we pray that there would be more people born again in this gathering, more people born again in this city. Lord, you are able to do such a miracle. And we pray that in the midst of all of this darkness and fear and chaos, that you would create new life ex nihilo, out of nothing. That you would create even your own children. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do this wonderfully in our city. We pray for our nation in all of its darkness. Lord, all of, the, all of the things that cause us anxiety through the week as we hear of wicked things and horrific things, not just in our nation but around the world, things that we cannot even utter. They are so wicked and despicable. And yet, Lord, you are still on the throne. And so, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for not recognizing your sovereignty. We do pray that righteousness would reign. We pray that 
men would flee this, this evil and wickedness. And they would turn to Jesus Christ, the only Savior the world can ever know. Lord, we pray for our own leaders in government. We do pray for Justin Trudeau. We ask, Lord, that in the midst of all the things that are going on in his life, that he would stop relying on his own skill and his own flesh, but that he would turn and repent and flee to Jesus, Lord. We would rejoice with him that he would be going to heaven with us. Lord, that would be a wonderful thing, but we pray, Lord, that he would flee from the wrath to come that is set upon him. Pray for Danielle Smith in the same way. We pray that she would flee from the wrath to come, that she would find her refuge in Jesus Christ alone and so be saved. For Jody Gondek, our mayor, we ask that she would pursue righteousness, that she would govern wisely, and that she would find Jesus Christ as her Savior, not herself or not in any other philosophy, but that she would look to Jesus Christ. And Lord, for us now, as we have this great privilege of hearing your word, we pray that your word would come with power to pierce us, that the sword of your spirit would perform a spiritual surgery on every heart here. You are only able to do it. So we appeal to you to act and to do it in our midst, in every heart here. And you would get all the glory, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been attending here for a little while, you're, you might be wondering, well, why are we back in Mark chapter 8? And, and there's a sense in which it's a little bit like the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, the character in Pilgrim's Progress, was proceeding up the mountain and there's this, there's this occasion where in the toil, toil and difficulty of going up the mountain, he comes to this little arbor, this little place of rest, and he's able to kind of rest and relax. And then when he continues on his journey, he actually forgets his parchment, his parchment, which is the declaration of salvation that, that Christian enjoyed, and he forgot his parchment. And he had to go back and backtrack and circle back around to get the parchment. And he he kind of regretted the fact that he was so neglectful. And there's a sense in which I've been burdened this week to circle back, to circle back for us here. Um, we went over Mark 8 this summer, but there's many of you here weren't here in the summer. You maybe weren't even in Calgary in the summer. Uh, so many visitors have come here, and, and we're just so glad that you are here. But Mark 8 is actually a, a key foundation for then the next passage in my exposition in Mark 12. Mark 8 is that most important section in Mark's gospel. And it's recounted with Peter's insight, Mark's gospel is, and, and the Holy Spirit has his perfect purpose in, God, in this word of God. And so I think right now, 
I'm circling back so that we would all have a moment of realism. A moment of realism, being real with God, being real before Him. And so then we're going to hear Christ's question, His rebuke, and His call. And I think for each one of us, it is so absolutely critical that we, we kind of put aside all of our credentials and qualifications and all of the things that we may rely on, and we come with open hearts before the face of Jesus Christ in His Word. And that is then what this passage is. So, so if you think, well, I know this stuff, then my suggestion to you is you need to circle back. You might have lost your parchment. You might have forgotten the things that ought not to be forgotten. You maybe have neglected these things. And so when we come then to this passage, we come to Mark chapter 8, we are faced then with that critical question in verses 27 to 30. Who do people say that I am? And that is a question for each person here. Who do you say that this Jesus is? Who is he? Now, of course, we know that over the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was viewed in many ways. He, was, he had all kinds of, of things where he was viewed in certain ways. For example... He was viewed as being the son of Beelzebub. In other words, he was called this one who was demon-possessed, who by the prince of demons, he cast out demons back in Mark chapter 3. Remarkable thing. You'd think, well, that's not the right answer. You know, that's not the right answer. And yet, that's what people thought. He, others... Others, in all of Jesus' claims to be the king, they, they said, no, no, no. We have no king but Caesar, they said. These Jews said in John 19 and verse 15 at the, at the possibility of crucifying their king, as Pilate was about to do. No, they rejected Jesus as the king. Further to that, Jesus was thought of as being a blasphemer. A blasphemer. They, in John chapter 10, when he said, I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones to murder him. Or we should really say, to judicially execute him. Because he was making the claim as a man to be equal with God, as we are told in John 10. So these were various views. And so then in John chapter 4, although the Father is seeking worshipers, John 1 tells us that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He did, they didn't receive him. So it's remarkable then these possibilities. Well, you see there then the options. When Jesus asked that question in verse 27, who do people say that I am? And they said, 
John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. Well, of course, John the Baptist, by this point in Mark chapter 8, John the Baptist was dead. So is this then Jesus, is this Jesus, John the Baptist, resurrected? Or is he, is he Elijah? According to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, this anticipated prophet that Malachi looked forward to who would be the forerunner to pave the way for the Lord. Was Jesus that Elijah? Well, Jesus had said actually that John the Baptist was the Elijah to be expected. So, you know, it could have been one, you know, could have been one of those. Or was he one of the prophets? Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 anticipated a prophet like Moses would come. So there was this thought, well, who, where's this prophet? Now, did you know, talk, everybody's learning lots about Judaism and Islam today because of the war between Israel and Hamas, but did you know that Islam considers Jesus to be a prophet? They affirm that. So when you're talking to your Muslim neighbors, as I have talked to, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, Jesus, 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 great, Jesus is awesome. You're, oh, I, I didn't think you liked Jesus. Oh no, Jesus is great. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus isn't God. But Jesus, he's, he's good, yeah. You know, but Muhammad, he's the, he's the pinnacle prophet. Jesus is just one of many. But they affirm that he's a prophet of a type. And then comparisons can abound when you start looking at who, is, who, who do people say that I am? What, how is he to be compared to this Jesus? So think of all the saviors throughout history. Alexander the Great was touted as a savior, viewed as a savior when he conquered the known world. Later on, Julius Caesar was recognized as this almost divine-like figure. And then his son, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, he was worshipped throughout the Roman Empire as a soter, as a savior, and as God. He was viewed as another god. We have all kinds of examples of this. Muhammad himself is venerated in the confession of Muslims. Or someone later on, like a Napoleon who crowned himself as the emperor of his vast kingdom. Mussolini made the trains run on time. You know, he was touted as the savior of Italy at the time. Even Adolf Hitler, he, w- he promised to make people proud to be Germans again. He was viewed as a, as a deliverer. Even in our own country, not too many here, there's a few here might remember Trudeau mania. Not Justin Trudeau, but Pierre Trudeau, his dad. And just viewed as then this great deliverer for Canada, bringing us into the modern age. Or even Justin Trudeau, who is called the Dauphin, which is this princely title uh, in, in French monarchy. That's what he was called. Barack Obama, first president of the United States, who was black. Donald Trump, the great disruptor of the deep state. People have all kinds of saviors that they view, whether all kinds of monarchs and dictators and liberators, from Edward VI to Mao Zedong, all of them viewing these figures 
as deliverers, and yet they're all dead in the ground or going to be. But then we come then to that remarkable question in verse 29. He asked them, but who do you, not just everybody else out there, who do you say that I am? And this today, this morning, is for each one of you the most personal question that could ever be asked of you. Who do you say that I am? And in saying that, it's not just who do you, you know, kind of make some verbal comment. It's actually what are you believing? Who do you say that I am? So this Jesus of Nazareth, how are you interpreting this? Is he real? It's a very just simple question. Is Jesus real? Or are you here because you are kind of wanting to get connected to some type of religion, some type of system of beliefs? Or are you coming to the Jesus who is the true and living God? Is he real? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, as we know most famously. Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And of course, we know that that name, Christ, became part of Jesus' own name, Jesus Christ. But of course, Christ was a title before it was a name. The Christ. You are the Christ. You are the one who fulfills this office, this title, this role. You are the Christ. The Christ, from the Greek Christos, ha Christos, is then the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. And that word means the anointed one. The anointed one. And so we remember back for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1, when Samuel the prophet came to anoint the king, King Saul in that instance. He was anointed for his role to be the king. And so forever after that, then the king of Israel was connected with this idea of being anointed. Anointed with oil, but symbolized the anointing of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit rests specially on the Anointed One. Later on in the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, we are told how this, this One would come, this Servant would come, and He would say that He has been anointed. I have been anointed to preach the good news to the poor. That's, that's this anticipated servant of God. And so here is this anointed one that Peter is saying, yes, Jesus, you, this guy that we, you know, we have lunch with, you, this guy that we hang out with, you, this guy that we know, that, that we really know, you actually are this anointed one. You have the Spirit in a way no one else has. You are set apart for this role. You are the predicted, promised saver. 
saver. You save. You deliver. You're the deliverer. You are the rescuer. You are the victor. You're the one to set all the wrongs right. You are the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You are the consolation of Israel. You are the light of the Gentiles. You're all of these things. And you're a guy that we know. In Matthew and in Luke is added this statement by Jesus that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it's not simply a matter of collecting sufficient data about Jesus. To recognize that Jesus is the Christ requires God to do something in you, in you specifically, in you dramatically, personally, supernaturally. He must do something in you. He actually must reveal Christ to you and even more specifically, he must reveal Christ in you as he did for Peter. Peter's confession was not a discovery made by bare logic or naked reason. That corrupt heart, your corrupt heart, the world's corrupt hearts will be blind even to the most obvious evidences. It's one of the things articulated through the Gospel of Mark. Lay out all the evidence. Hearts are still blind. What did I preach a little while ago? Your your feelings don't care about facts. Your feelings don't care about facts because you're blind. And so, as Paul said in Galatians 1.16, when Christ was revealed in me, in me, you need to ask God to reveal Christ in you, that you would believe in Him from the heart, that you would know Him. This happened to Peter. This is the remarkable thing, that it was the Father who was in heaven who revealed this to him. He said, you are the Christ. And the question is, it happened to Peter. But the very important question this morning is, has it happened to you? Has it happened in you? Or have you been playing a church game? Or maybe you're here and you just, you've hardly had any connection to Christianity, to the church. And I would just invite you to call out to God and ask Him to reveal Himself to you and to reveal Christ in you. Ask Him. Ask Him to do that. Appeal to Him in His power and His awesomeness to do that for you. Because He's able. It's a remarkable thing. And strangely enough, then in verse 30, unlike all of these would-be saviors, all of these gurus and heroes and dictators and monarchs and conk, conquer, excuse me, all these people, verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't post it on Facebook. Don't put it on Twitter. Don't have it on TikTok. You know, but that's what everybody else would do, right? Like that's what every politician, every, you know, we see now. That's what governments do. Got to get the, get, the, get the information out there. Got to get the propaganda out there. Jesus, very interesting. It's all through Mark. He says, don't 
tell anybody about this. Now, why would he do that? Why would he want to keep it on the down low? Why would he not want it all broadcast? Isn't that why he came? We're supposed to broadcast that Jesus is Lord. We're supposed to broadcast that Jesus is the Christ. Why now? And it's because of this. He was letting his works speak for themselves. Let the works speak for themselves. And let people make their assessments based on the works themselves. And so then he's testing everybody by that so that's the question before us Christ's question to you and you might be thinking oh yeah I know this I know this but the question is are you is is the Jesus that you claim to be following is he actually the true Christ and that is a critical question have you been kidding yourself and maybe you've been following a Jesus of your own making rather than the true Christ just as these folks were doing, they were in threat of doing. And Peter, when he confesses the true Christ, it's only because God has revealed that to him. But then, verse 31 brings us then to this, this whole second section, this whole other issue. And it is this, this challenge, namely, verse 31 he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Now this, this would be tough to take. Because in the Jewish expectation, as you may know, the Jewish expectation of that time The idea that the Messiah, the Anointed One, came to be understood in the literature of the Second Temple, the time between the Testaments, we could say. In in that literature, there was a Jewish expectation that the Anointed One, the Messiah, would come and deliver them, first from the Greeks, the Greek domination, and then later from Roman domination. And so they wanted political liberation. And they thought, this is, when the Messiah comes, this is our guy. This is our, this is our red Caesar. This is our guy to get behind. This is our guy that we can rely on. And so when Jesus starts saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by our establishment, our very establishment, the religious establishment, our own, our own guys... And then he's going to be killed. What kind of Messiah is that? That's a loser. It's a easy, that's, that's a loser. That's a losing bet. Why would we want to put ourselves behind a losing bet? And you might think, oh, well, that's all, you know, way back then. I'll tell you what. It's probably getting right into your business right now if you think, is this what I should be doing with my faith? getting behind Christianity in this hostile world? Is confessing Christ and all of the ethics that the Bible teaches, is that a losing bet in this society? You might be tempted to think that way. Because there's lots of folks in town here, they think Christianity is a losing bet. Like it is not a way to have success in this current, you know, current time. You need to get with the get with the other agendas, right? 
get with those, those other agendas out there, not this, not this Christian agenda. So, so you've got to have some sympathy for Peter here. You've got to, you know, I mean, Peter, he, he, he's, he's hearing this. And Jesus is very upfront. Verse 32, he said this plainly. He's not speaking in parables. He's not speaking by analogy. He's being very open about it. But this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus dying and rising from the dead. Jesus is unpacking it. You want to know, here's the good news. This is it. I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. The very heart of it all. Right here, laying it out. This is how it's going to work. Very plain, very open. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You, you can't do it that way, Jesus. You, that's not right. You cannot do it that way. He rebuked him. Stop. That is not the plan, Jesus. You can't allow that to happen. That is not the program here. Now, I just think it's really, you know, this, this is really where it gets us. This is our sympathy with Peter because we act like that every day. We act like that with Jesus all the time. We're like, uh, I don't really like how you're doing things in my life, Jesus. I don't like this plan that you have for me. I don't like the way that you're thwarting all of my plans and ideas. I don't like the way things are going in my family or in my marriage or in my church or in my career or in my nation. I don't really like how you're doing things, Jesus. Has anybody felt that way? Oh, yeah. Okay, we got at least, I got one hand. No, that's okay. If you're honest, you feel it often because you can be puzzled, puzzled and, and challenged and you just these things like you why 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 is it going like why are you saying it's going to go like this? This is not the triumph we expected. And there's many of you here, you want to follow Jesus, but you're thinking that, ah, yes, I follow Jesus, and this is the triumphal way. Everything's going to be awesome. Everything's going to have power. Everything's going to be strong. Yeah, there is power. There is strength. But it is in the glory of the resurrection. Yes, he gives us power to persevere in trial and hardship, but there is great humiliation and weakening and difficulty, but there is joy in the midst of that sorrow. There's joy in the midst of it because our hope is beyond all of it. So you got sympathy with Peter. The idea of a crucified Messiah, a Messiah who would die, in that way, and specifically a crucified Messiah, that was a contradiction in terms. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block because people, people actually couldn't in good conscience embrace it. These Jews... It, it affected their conscience. They thought it was wrong. It was wrong to believe in a Messiah who would be crucified. 
and is evidence in even today in Israel. There are Jews there. They, they do not accept Jesus as the Christ because they say, well, how could the Messiah be crucified? And if he was a Messiah, how come there's still war and wickedness and tragedy? And they, they think he's not good enough. He's not good enough to do the job, so they reject him. So he's either a stumbling block or folly, but for a Jew like Peter, it's, it's a blasphemous idea. And, and this is where I think Peter, in rebuking Jesus over this idea of him suffering and being rejected by the elders, all the leaders, chief priests, scribes, and being killed, I think that Peter, knowing his Bible, would recognize that for Jesus to be judged and executed by the religious leaders of Israel puts Jesus in the category of the rebellious son described in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verses 18 and following. You can turn there, you can just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 18 says this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, Deuteronomy 21, 19, then his father and his mother shall take a hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Verse 21, Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, I think it's very important to recognize that for Peter, Peter understood, as many of the other Jews understood, that Jesus started to appear like that rebellious son. And if so, he's evil and he needed to be executed. That is one of the perceptions that people had. The very next paragraph in Deuteronomy 21 speaks of how that wicked man is to be hung up in a tree. He's to be hung up in a tree. 4, verse 23, a hanged man is cursed by God. So although Jesus in Mark 8 does not mention his sufferings on the cross specifically, he's going to mention us taking up our cross, Peter's rebuke, I think, shows that the curse of the hanged man was on both of their minds, both Jesus's and Peter's. But Peter can't get past the fact of this curse on Jesus. So he rebukes him, not thinking about the possibility that on the third day he would rise from the dead. Peter couldn't imagine that the Messiah could be destined to hang. He couldn't imagine that. So then Peter is actually rebuking the incarnate son. 
He's rebuking God. He's kind of like, like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord or, or Gideon asking for repeated fleeces from God. Peter couldn't let the true Christ do the things that he was going to do in this unexpected and uncomfortable way. He wouldn't let him. Peter, Peter let out, uh, maybe something like you, maybe something like me, let out his inner control freak. Right? Oh, you're not a control freak. I know you're not. Yeah, right. We all are in some measure. Some more than others. We all want to, we want to control Jesus and we want to control the outcomes. And when the outcomes don't come as you can want them, that's when you start getting mad and frustrated and angry and depressed and bitter. Why are you mad? You ever ask yourself that? Why are you cranky? Why are you mad? Why are you sour? Why? Is it not because God is doing things or permitting things or changing things or leaving things the same all in ways that you don't like? It's all the stuff he's doing, allowing things you don't prefer. It's all that stuff. And if you could, and if you do, then you take your complaints and you direct them at God the Son, just like Peter did, and you rebuke him. That's what you've been doing. Maybe not explicitly like that, but that's what's going on in your heart. Each day is this challenge, is it not, where you're tempted to rebuke God, to rebuke Christ because you don't like the way he's doing things. Of course, we see how dumb Peter is in rebuking Jesus. You know, but that's the point. That's the point of it being included. Why Peter, Peter who helped Mark in writing the gospel, Peter is telling on himself. He's like, hey, look at me. Look at how dumb I am. But it's instructive for you because probably you are too. But then, on the other hand, you see that Jesus allowed it? Jesus allows it. He doesn't strike Peter dead at that moment. He heard it, but he didn't tolerate it. We can complain to God, and God patiently hears us, but God will not indulge us. He will not tolerate our sin. And so we have Christ's own rebuke in verse 33. Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So you've got this powerful shift from the man coming, coming at God to God coming at the man. And you get here a, a hint of the judicial clarity of Jesus. He's the judge. He's not renouncing Peter, but he is renouncing Satan. Jesus would not tolerate Satan's lies or his influence or his agenda to direct his own affairs. Jesus was not Satan's slave. It's very important to recognize. Just like Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness back in Mark 1 or Matthew 4 or Luke 4, the agenda of Satan is to divert Jesus away from his sufferings away from his atoning, away from his cross. 
All Jesus had to do was worship Satan. All Jesus had to do was follow Peter's wrong-headed, satanic correction. That's all he had to do. But Jesus, the incarnate Son, according to his human nature, showed what he said. He practiced what he preached. Jesus set his mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. Which is why Paul has told us to do the same in Colossians 3 verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It is a paraphrase, a pretty good one, of Jesus' words that he said to Peter, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, do you realize that you can pursue a a logical course of action, a seemingly rational plan, and yet you can be doing so without God? You're like, oh, this is logical. This is very rational. This seems very wise. But you're doing it without reference to God at all. You can be prudent and careful yet God is not even considered. You can act without God. You can build and plant and plan and make without reference to God and the things of God. You you can be very busy with your life. Are we not all busy? We're all crazy busy, aren't we? You can be very busy with your life, and God is seemingly pushed to the margins. He's hardly remembered. He is left to an afterthought, He is reduced to an add-on. He is made, as David Wells says, he's a junior partner in your personal enterprises. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I got God with me. He's over there. He's over there. He's not at the forefront. And do you realize that when you're doing that, you're treating God that way? You're doing it Satan's way. When you reduce your attentiveness to God, you are increasing your attentiveness to Satan without realizing it. You may not be possessed by Satan, but you're duped by Satan. Paul said, we are not ignorant of his schemes, 2 Corinthians 2.11, but what if we we, we actually are ignorant of them? We're actually clueless to them. What if we very much are like Peter, blindly, arrogantly being upset with God because God is not doing things the way he's supposed to do them in our reckoning? This should should pierce each one of you as it pierces me. Because this is our tensions with God. That's the case. But be glad then, friends, when Jesus rebukes you. (laughs) Oh, He loves you too much to let you drift along believing and spouting Satan's lies. Jesus will stop you if you belong to him. See, this is, Peter belongs to Jesus. That's why Jesus rebukes him. Jesus will stop you and will arrest you. And he will show you by the power of his word that you must look again to the things of God and stop looking at the things of man. What a mercy when Jesus rebukes you. When you are stopped because you couldn't stop yourself. You couldn't help yourself, it seems like. But then as we come to this third point, 
in verses 34 to 38. And we just think, and I don't need to go into it, I don't need to delineate the deceptiveness of our age, the disinformation we have, the spin, the deep fakes, the lies. People backtrack, they flat out deny what they said. There's lies everywhere. And, and if you're like me, you're not clever enough to, to see through the lies. And yet God reveals his truth into your life. And he gives you eyes to see. You can see through the lies. He gives you a heart to believe. He gives it to you despite the lies. Because otherwise, you'd keep on believing the lies. And then we read in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus brings that dividing line we've talked about through this series in Mark. He has exposed the lies. He's exposed the, the lies in such a way so you either have to live by lies or live not by lies with apologies to Solzhenitsyn and Rod Dreher. To live not by lies requires embracing Christ's call. His call to take up the cross and follow Him, denying ourselves His call. That is the most critical thing to live not by lies requires embracing his call. His call is the pathway that Jesus has trod. His call is for us to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, Revelation 14 and verse 4. We follow, where's Jesus going? What is Jesus doing? Where's Jesus going? I just follow him. I don't stop and think, is this the best rational course of action for me at this point in my life? I, no, you just follow him. Get with the program. You just follow him. This is what he demands. That's what you do. To follow Christ is to take up the cross. To take up identification with him and his cross. To take up our imitation of Christ in both believing and in suffering, Philippians tells us, as you guys are studying Philippians, Philippians 1, he has given us both. He gives us the faith, and he gives us the sufferings. We imitate him in both. We are to be crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Crucified with Christ. What does that mean? We're not time-traveling. We're not doing a physical reenactment like they do in the Philippines, putting the spikes through a dude's hands as he carries around a cross, thinking that's going to earn him points with, with God. No, we are crucified with him when we accept sufferings that would, poten excuse me, that would potentially derail us from our devotion to Jesus. There's sufferings you guys are facing that would potentially derail your devotion to Jesus right now. Every time you suffer, 
you are tempted to stop believing in Jesus. Aren't you? Why is this happening to me? We accept the sufferings as part of our identification with him. We accept the sufferings as our passcode to heaven. We accept them as the badge of our enlistment in his army. We accept them as the family crest of our royal inheritance. So Christ's call to take up our cross is the imitation of the sufferings of Christ and the embrace of them. Not in some sort of masochistic way, but in an eschatological way. We suffer now to celebrate then. We bear the cross now to bear the crown then. And then we will cast our crowns before him and worship to him. Verse 35 says that those who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will find it. This is an absolute alternative to the world's way. Otherwise, you have to take Satan's way. If you take Satan's way, you seek for power. You seek to save your life. You seek for gain. Never underestimate the possibility that the pursuit of power would be satanic. You're tempted by it to pursue power financial power, status power, health power, whatever it is. And you could be pursuing that power and it be satanic by its very definition. Historically, those who have been among the rulers of societies have sought power and so they have pursued the things of man into dark paths. They've sought what is truly of Satan. King Solomon lost his way and built special places for the worship of Moloch and satanic idols, 1 Kings 18. Gavin's going to be speaking on Solomon at the men's breakfast. So it's very clear. You can take the cross, or you can lose your soul. Losing your soul to Satan. That is what is before each of you today. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul that is the power equation. You can seek the things of man. You can do that. You can seek it all. And you actually forfeit your soul to Satan. Sure, you'll seem to gain the whole world. But you'll be a soulless ghoul. A zombie without a soul. A, a condemned creature of hell. You know, the, the great and the wonderful, the billionaires of our of our world, if you're to talk with them, you find out that for all their cleverness and their power and ability, there's nothing inside. They have a soul, but the soul has been given to Satan. So don't be enamored with them and want to be like them. You can take up the cross and when you are a believer, when you take up the cross, that torture stick, which is what it was, it's like an electric chair, when you take up the cross, it becomes a thing of beauty. It becomes a thing of beauty. The budding cross becomes beautiful when you take it up because you believe in Jesus Christ. 
You take up the sufferings of Christ as an opportunity for a shared experience, a share in Christ's suffering, playing your part in the theater of God's glory, following Jesus on pilgrimage, looking to Him, being comforted by Him all the way along, feeling weak, yet being made strong, feeling sick of this world, yet excited for that world, all of it. It's not enough, as Jordan Peterson has done, to secularize the taking up of the cross to mean simply embracing difficulty. That's not it. It's not just deny yourself. It is deny yourself and take up the cross. Otherwise, it's mere stoicism. But we have something profoundly more. It says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. Me. We follow Jesus. He is leading us to eternity. He is the archegos, the trailblazer, the pioneer. We don't have to figure out the way to go. You don't have to figure it out. Aren't you tired of trying to figure it out? I'm weary of trying to figure it out. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I'm going to just follow Jesus and trust Him. Give up trying to control your life and follow Jesus. Follow me, He says. That's all we have to do. He takes the lead, we follow. We're not arrogant and going to do our life coaching and you know, boutique life design. Is that what you're doing? We follow Him. We follow Him. And that's how we gain it all. By losing it all. And leaving it all behind here. You know, the richest man in the world, you know how much he was worth when he died? Zero. Because he can't take it with him. Zilch. Nothing. You can't take it with you. You leave it all behind. The world you will part with when you die will be left behind. And that world will burn and be made into a new, new heavens and new earth. But what do you gain? You gain the celestial city. You gain the heavenly Jerusalem. You gain heaven and earth meeting for eternity. The glory of the Lamb replacing the brightness of the sun. Exploring the universe with the saints. Ruling and reigning with Christ forever. The last verse of the chapter ties it all together in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. What do you really want? Like, like this is, that's the question. What do you really want? What do you want out of life? Do you want the satanic smile of worldly glory now? Or do you want the smile of Christ upon you in the Father's glory then? That's it. The satanic smile of the world's glory now or the smile of Christ in the Father's glory then. You are tempted like Peter to rebuke Christ for his way of doing things. Trust Christ. Follow him. 
If you're backslidden a bit or much, if you've been duped by Satan, all you need to do is call out to Jesus. Look to him, return to him. Look at your sufferings. Some of them are self-imposed. Most of them are literally outside of your control. All you need to do is suffer and believe and know that you're being molded and shaped to be like Christ. And I just urge you, pan out, zoom out, zoom out on your life and look at the whole and realize that if you are not ashamed before God, that's worth more than anything in this world. So you can take up your cross. If you don't, you have lost your soul. Why? Why when that offer is there? And so I urge you, as Jesus does, will you take up your cross or will you keep selling out to Satan? That is what is before us. For those of you who are bearing the cross and following him, then be encouraged. He walked your Calvary road before you did. He did it. He knows every step, every stone, and he is not ashamed of you. And he won't be. For he will bring with him He will bring you with him to glory, the glory of his Father and your Father. And may we have then that glory in our eye as we bear the cross and follow the Son. Let's pray together. Almighty God, create new followers of Jesus Christ in this moment by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and respond to the glory of the risen Christ. Please rise. If you've been carrying guilt and shame and being crippled by guilt and shame, then the words of Romans 10 and verse 11 are for you and for all of us. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon him today. Bring your guilt and your shame to him. Call upon him and you will not be ashamed. Believe on him today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.